0: Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, Episode 17.
1: Is everybody in the world going to die before someone finds the answer? Do I have to remind you that theory is the beginning of solution?
0: What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing? (laughs)
2: All I've ever known to be true is a lie. I didn't say it would be easy, I just said it would be the truth. I believe this is going to be our finest hour.
1: Welcome to Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander where we break away from religious systems and man-made dogma to learn the Word of God from an independent Hebraic perspective. And now your host, the prophecy buff who tackles the tough stuff, Alexander Lawrence. Hello and shalom.
0: The hour is late, the time is short, and the storm is coming, so this is your opportunity for a systems check. I'm here to wake up the sleeping servants of Yahweh God and equip them for the last days. I do that by teaching discernment, poring over prophecies, treating the infection of mystery Babylon and the church, and giving you courage. My book is Leviathan's Ruse, the comprehensive guide to the battle between good and evil. My website is watchmanalexander.com. Last week, I mentioned that I would be hosting a live webinar introducing my upcoming online course, Secrets of the Forgotten Prophetic Scriptures 101, The Apocalypse of Baruch. Well, that webinar did happen, but not without issues. A lot of people had trouble getting in or staying in, including my co-host, Amanda, and then the webinar system didn't save the replay. As a result, I had to do a pre-recorded recreation of the webinar, and I like it. I think it turned out very well, but it, it was taking a long time for it to get completed, for it to render out all the video. Uh, so it didn't come out until the end of the week, but that is available now. You can find it on my YouTube channel. If you go to uh, just search Washman Alexander in YouTube, uh, it's the most recent video there. So you can watch that recreation and get an idea for what the course is going to be like and what's going to be involved. Hopefully you'll like that and you can pass it around to your friends if you think that they might be interested in the course. Well, our last episode was the first in a series called Laying a Foundation, where we began a survey of important concepts in scripture. With Genesis 1.1 as our starting point, we left off talking about the fact that there is no singular form of the word heaven in Hebrew. It's heavens or shamayim and how the spiritual realm is part of the greater Hebraic concept of the heavens. The spiritual realm is all around us, but it overlays this realm or these lower dimensions. And the heavens are not only the space above us, but they're also that spiritual realm all around us and above us. Then I briefly talked about the fact that Yahweh used a firmament called rakia in Hebrew to make a space between the waters above and the waters below, and the space in between the waters is part of the heavens. But what is that rakia, that firmament? That subject is what we're going to tackle right now. To begin with, I totally reject the idea that Yahweh pandered to an incorrect primitive understanding of cosmology when he authored the Torah through Moses. I do not believe that he went along with a wrong idea about the cosmos that was held by people at that time just so that they wouldn't get confused, just so that they would feel comfortable and be able to maintain their primitive and limited understanding of things. There are some very prominent teachers that are putting forward this theory, including Michael Heiser. Dr. Michael Heiser is someone that I respect quite highly, and a lot of his work is very good. However, he holds to this idea that the biblical conception of the earth is a flat earth with a dome over it, and yet he believes that that was just what God allowed people to believe. It it isn't actually true, but since everyone in the ancient world believed that and already had this conception ingrained in their collective consciousness, God just went with it. I know that sometimes I'm wrong about things, including my interpretation of scripture, and so I wanted to take this to the Father and not go with my gut instinct and not rely on my own understanding. Because while careful thought and careful study is important, um, ultimately our wisdom is nothing in comparison to his. And we really need his wisdom. We really need to hear from him on complicated subjects like this, because these scholars who are uh, teaching what I was just saying, they are also brothers in the Lord, and they are also well-meaning individuals. So uh, it's not like I can just discard what they have to say. I should carefully consider their thoughts on this matter and their expertise, because indeed, they have studied this as well. And in some ways, they have more information at their disposal than I do because they've been through a lot of training that I haven't been through. So I wanted to be humble and consider that they might be right on this issue and I may be off target. So I went to the father in prayer and very quickly I got back an answer. Now, this is not thus saith the Lord, as in Adonai dictating the words to me, but I got a strong impression and the impression I got in the Ruach very quickly after praying this Was there is no falsehood in me, neither will I speak after the imaginations of men. Again, this is not thus saith the Lord. I did not hear these words verbally spoken, but I got this impression there is no falsehood in Yahweh, and he will not speak after the imaginations of men. So that's abundantly clear to me, but take it as you will. Uh, But I'm going to stand on this understanding now that Yahweh never caters to incorrect notions. If he wants to speak to us about a topic over which we human beings are confused or deceived, he will correct our misunderstanding along the way. Now, someone may argue that Elohim does cater to primitive human understanding when he says something like, the sun rises and sets. Well, first of all, can you prove that the sun is still and the earth is moving? Are you totally 100% sure of it? Even if you could prove it, that still doesn't mean that Elohim is catering to ignorance. Why? Uh, Well, it's because he's speaking from our point of view. And every point of view is relative. From an earthbound perspective, the sun does rise and set. That is not incorrect information. Let me give you an analogy. A car going 50 miles per hour is moving slowly from the point of view of the passengers in a car that passes it, going 100 miles per hour. The person inside that car going 100 miles per hour thinks to himself, you know, slow pokes, <laughs> why aren't they going fast? They need to get off of the highway, maybe the Autobahn in this example. But From the point of view of bystanders who are on a sidewalk, the car that's going 50 miles per hour is moving quite quickly. Neither set of observers is incorrect. They're both correct. Relative to their position, Elohim could speak from the perspective of either one of those groups that I just described and be speaking what is true relative to that group. What Elohim cannot do is say that something exists when it doesn't. That has nothing to do with perspective or relativity. It's a simple fact versus falsehood issue. He cannot claim that there is a hard object separating the waters above and below. If it's not actually there and according to modern scientific opinion nothing is out there but empty space sprinkled with balls of rock and fire let's talk about this term rakia or firmament the hebrew root for rakia is the verb raka and it means to beat or stamp out and it's typically applied to metal that's being beaten out into a thin sheet by a blacksmith so rakia firmament denotes something which has been beaten or spread out like a sheet of metal making being made into a mirror. Brown, Driver, and Briggs defines rakia as an extended surface or solid expanse. This understanding of the rakia as a solid expanse or solid sheet is confirmed in Job thirty-seven eighteen, where Job's friend asks him, can you join Elohim in hammering out? Raqqa, the skies as hard as a mirror of cast bronze, could hardly be any plainer than that. So the firmament is a thin, solid object, at least in part. The fact that Genesis 1 verses 14 through 17 uses the compound phrase, the firmament of the heavens, the firmament of the Shamaim, further indicates to me that the rakia is not synonymous with the heavens. But the two are closely associated, like a package deal. Psalm nineteen one says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. There's poetic parallelism at work. There's poetic parallelism at work in this verse. God's glory and handiwork are being paralleled, and the heavens and the firmament are being paralleled. You see the close connection here? Heavens, shamaim is a different word than firmament, rakia, and yet the two things are closely associated in this verse, as well as in Genesis 1. In the part of Genesis chapter 1 that describes the fourth day, we see that the stars, sun, and moon were all created on that day, and at that time were placed within the firmament. This is verses 16 and 17. All of the heavenly bodies, all the luminaries, were placed within the firmament, not outside of it. That's very important. Literally, the Hebrew there says, Elohim is giving the luminaries firmament of heavens light on the earth. That's, of course, uh, a strange thing to say in English, but in Hebrew, it's very clearly saying that the firmament of Of the heavens, again, there's that compound phrase. It's not just the firmament, it's not just the heavens, but the firmament of the heavens is where the luminaries are located, giving their light upon the earth. This does seem like a slam dunk for the flat earth folks, at least at first, but actually, the verse doesn't give us enough information to be able to say one way or the other. Are the luminaries inside the solid structure of the Rakia, or are they simply inside of its bounds? If they're within the structure itself, then outer space is not what we've been taught. It does not exist in that case because the cosmos would simply be the upper atmosphere above which would be a confined vacuum for a a small space. And then there would be a firmament, a dome uh, containing luminaries inside of it. But even the flat earth models don't agree with this conceptualization. Because they have the sun and the moon circling over the disk of the earth, parallel to the ground, and only the stars are traveling along the surface of the dome. The stars are going in arcs because they're traveling basically in a circle, but the sun and the moon are staying parallel, a a very specified distance from the ground at all times. But that is not what Genesis 1, 16 and 17 is describing. Genesis is saying that the sun, moon, and stars were all inside the firmament. So if they are within that that hard surface, that hammered out surface, then they have to be traveling in arcs, which makes the flat earth models that I've seen broken. They wouldn't work. If you're going to hold to a flat earth model where the sun and the moon are always a constant distance from the surface of the earth and they're not part of that dome, then you have to consider the firmament of the heavens to be not only the dome itself, but also the space underneath it, which I think is fair. I think we can interpret it that way. In fact, I'm going to argue for that. But you can't have it both ways. Either all the luminaries have to be in the dome, in the surface of the dome, the structure of the thing, or they have to be partially in it and partially underneath it. So the firmament of the heavens has to be compound more than just that actual hammered out surface. It has to be the space as well. But the issue we have with this idea that everything, all the luminaries would be inside the actual solid part of the dome is that the movement of the planets in relation to the sun uh, demonstrates to us that there's depth. So, a simple, reliable astronomical observation of the planets and the the luminaries over the course of a year will show us that the planets orbit the sun. They occasionally will go behind the sun and occasionally go right in front of it. They will occasionally overlap each other during their orbits. So, they have to be arranged in concentric rings. Just observation shows us that that is how they're arranged up there. Well, that presents us with a conundrum. If everything is inside the vault, then there's no depth to work with. This is a thin surface, a thin spread out expanse, like a blacksmith hammering out a piece of metal, remember? How are the planets arranged concentrically around the sun if they're within this thin sheet? Maybe it's all an illusion, like the projected image on the inside of the dome in the Truman Show. Maybe that's it, but I doubt it. I think there's another option. What if the firmament is both the shell and the space inside of it? It's both the dome or the, the ball, the surface of the ball that's around us, depending on how you want to look at it. And it's all the space underneath that until you get to the earth. Think of it like an egg. So it would be not only the shell of the egg, but it would be the white portion inside it before you got to the yolk. And the yoke would be like the earth itself at the center. It would be similar to the common use of the term Passover, because we use that term to refer to the whole week of unleavened bread that begins with the Passover feast. So technically speaking, the Passover is a meal. It's not a time period, but we use it in that sense. We say the Passover in reference to the entire seven days of unleavened bread that starts with the Passover. I think it might be something like that, where the firmament is this whole kit and caboodle. It's it's the firmament of the heavens because it's the space as well as the shell. Remember when I said back in episode number one that I was going to make everyone mad at me at one time or another? Well, this is one of those times, I think. I watched a few videos by the creator of a documentary called The Principle. Is produced by Richard Delano, and that video, or those videos, immediately snapped me out of a modern cosmological paradigm and into a biblical one and I don't mean flat earth cosmology; I mean geocentric instead of heliocentric and right there, a lot of people have gotten very upset or confused um there has been a disturbance in the force, yes geocentric instead of heliocentric but stay with me okay don't leave yet i'm going to talk to you about why that might be a legitimate thing to do is to move from being heliocentric to geocentric let me be clear that i'm not currently of the flat earth persuasion i don't believe that the earth is flat at this moment now i'm not completely ruling it out either i'm just not there yet At present, I feel that there's way too much evidence stacked against the flat earth model. Some of their arguments I've been able to debunk myself and some I haven't. Let me give you a couple of examples. Flat earthers will argue that the sun's rays tell us that the sun has to be close instead of far away. It has to be within, say, 100 miles or so rather than many millions of miles. And they argued this because when you look at the, uh, the rays of light as they come down through an atmosphere that's a little bit hazy, you will see them spreading out. The rays are not parallel to each other. Well, the light rays from the sun are coming from so far away that we only get a little sliver of the total amount of light that's coming off of the sun in the normal scientific understanding of things. And so even though those rays are not technically parallel, they're for all intents and purposes, parallel once they reach us. It's basically such a small difference in angle that we can consider them to be parallel. The problem is these rays that people are seeing coming down from the sky are not parallel. They're spreading out. So that tells them, oh, the sun must be closer. That's why the angle is dramatic and noticeable. That is just complete nonsense let me preface this by saying I'm an artist. I have an understanding of the visual world because I've studied what makes things look the way that they do. And as an artist, I can confidently tell you that the rays spreading out like that is the result of perspective. When you have an object coming from the distance or uh, retreating into the distance, like telephone wires or like the sides of a, a long, really long hallway, you will be able to easily see that everything goes down to a single point out in the distance. Depending on how long it is, you know, it may not be long enough that you really notice this effect, but if it is something that is stretched out like the telephone wires down a long portion of highway, especially out somewhere nice and flat like the salt flats out in the Western states, you will be able to tell that uh that line is descending toward the horizon and finally it meets the horizon, and um that road that was below the horizon is going up to meet that same point. This is called perspective. Everything goes to a single point on the horizon as a three d artist, I have to use this phenomenon all the time otherwise my renderings won't look correct uh, perspective is just a a normal everyday part of what i do so i can guarantee you that the reason that those rays are spreading out when you look at the sun rays coming down through the clouds is because of the phenomenon of perspective another thing that flat earthers will say is that water always finds its level and it's always flat when you have a wide expanse of water. It's flat, it doesn't curve, but water always finds its level, so if things were curved, the water would run off, right? The the water would not become a flat sheet like that. It would go in one direction or the other to try and find that level lowest point. And that also doesn't make any sense when you understand gravity in the spherical model of the earth. The direction in which gravity pulls is to the center of the earth. So it's always going to be tangent to the surface of the sphere. A tangent is the point at which a straight line touches a curve. So if you were to draw an imaginary an imaginary straight line right over the surface of the earth, uh, the one point at which the two things intersect is that tangent. And you could do that for every point on the surface of the Earth. Every point has a different tangent. Now, of course, it's a continuum, so you have an infinite number of tangents in the real world. But uh, when we do it on paper or we do mathematical examples, um, we pick discrete points. But either way, if you pick any tangent along the surface of the Earth, the effect of gravity from that point is always going to be perpendicular to that tangent. So that line that is touching the earth at that point is going to be 90 degrees different from the direction that gravity is pulling because it's always pulling to the center. And no matter where you stand on a sphere, the center is always going to be directly underneath you. So water even if it's on a curved surface, if it's being pulled towards a center at every single tangent at every point in that body of water, then it's going to be flat. It's going to appear to be completely flat because the tangent is perpendicular at every point. It's again, it's a matter of perception. It looks flat to us because it's such a large body, and the gravity is pulling perpendicular at every point. This would be easier to explain visually than orally, but hopefully you get the idea. And yet, there are some things that flat earthers point to that I have not yet been able to uh, explain away. For instance, objects that should be behind the curve of the earth are still visible at a great distance. Why are we able to see certain cities uh in or mountains or you know tall features in the distance that should be completely obscured underneath the curve of the earth, and when you get a telephoto lens out on a very clear day and you watch a boat sailing away, it doesn't dip down underneath the horizon; it gets smaller and smaller and smaller to a point until the atmosphere obscures it until there's so much haze between you and it that the light can no longer penetrate through, Um, you know, it gets scattered too much by the atmospheric conditions. But what we should see is before that point, it goes under the curve of the earth, it dips down. I mean, that's what we were taught in school, isn't it? That uh, Columbus sat in the window of his, uh, of his home or his tower, and he watched with a, a telescope as these ships sailed off over the horizon, and they They dipped down or they came up over the horizon and he saw the mast first. It rose out of the water, almost like this thing was um, ascending as a submarine. But no, it was coming over the curve of the Earth. That's what I was taught. And yet now that we have telephoto lenses, when we actually test these things, we find that's not the case. You can still see the the objects in the distance, um, even though they shouldn't be there. They should be obscured. So I can't explain that yet. Maybe there is an explanation and we just haven't found it yet. Uh, So, for, for that kind of reason, I'm not completely ruling out the idea of a flat earth. I'm just not sold on it yet. Now that I've given you that little disclaimer, I want to talk about some of the biblical issues that I see with a flat earth theory. Many of the verses used by flat earthers can be interpreted differently than they claim that they can be or should be. They pick and choose with their literalism. Let me give you a couple of examples.
1: Hold it right there, Watchman. Get a cup of tea. It's time for Everything Under the Sun when we take three minutes to hear from the Watchman's wife, Amanda Lawrence.
0: Hi, it's me again. I'm sorry to play with your emotions, but Amanda is not going to be with you today. She was unable to record everything under the sun this week. However, I still want a cup of tea, so I'm going to have a hot cup of tea, and I figured you can just talk to me for a few minutes. Tell me about your week. How are things?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Really? Oh, that's interesting.
2: Mm. This is good tea. Oh,
1: <laughs> yes, I can relate. Absolutely.
2: hmm. Right. Right. Tell me more about that. How did that make you feel? Well, did you pray about it? I'm not one to tell you how to live your life, but I certainly think that would be a good idea.
0: Oh, I know, my friend. The greatest distance in the universe is the 18 inches between your
2: head and your heart. Amen. Amen. Mhm. And what happened next? Oh, you're kidding. Oh, my Satan sense is tingling. Well, that's good. That makes more sense. Mm hmm. Uh, that's a great story. Well, thank you for telling me all about your week.
0: That was really interesting. I will tell Amanda that you said hello. Okay, great. Talk to you next time. Now that I've enjoyed my hibiscus lemongrass tea, we can get back to business. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22 says, He's the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in. Flat earthers will point to the word tent in this verse and say, "Looky, a tent is a dome. The firmament must be dome shaped. Okay, hold your horses. First of all, it doesn't say rakia here. It says shamayim. So we're not even talking about the actual solid structure of the firmament. We're talking about the heavens, which we've already determined is the space above us as well as the higher dimensions around us. But secondly, they gloss over the fact that in the same sentence, the heavens are compared to a curtain, which is flat, not curved like a dome. So which one is it? Elsewhere in scripture, we're told that Yahweh is going to fold up the heavens like a garment. And we're told that they will be rolled up like a scroll on the day of the Lord. And neither of those things are dome-shaped. The analogy here in Isaiah 40 is of a thin partition that separates one zone from another one. A curtain separates one room from another. A tent separates the interior, the safer space inside, from the wilderness outside. Don't take this too literally, folks. It's a simile. What I think this is talking about in Isaiah 40 is about the fabric of the dimensions. A curtain is a thin piece of fabric. So is a tent. So is a garment. So is a scroll. These are all thin and uh, molded, changed. The shape can be changed. So I think this is talking about the veil between the material realm in the spiritual realm, the very fabric of the dimensions, which by the way is very thin. We used to think that space is empty, it's just nothingness, but science has shown recently that that is not true. In fact, space is full. I know that's a hard concept to understand, but when you get down to the the subatomic level, you find that it's actually bubbling with quantum activity. These quantum particles are appearing and disappearing everywhere constantly. It's like a a frothing foam. There's a popular but unproven theory about the basic makeup of the universe that says that everything is based on strings. It's called the string theory. And all of space and time would be, as far as I understand it, now please, if you uh, know more about this than I do, You know, don't send me any hate mail, I guess. But from how I understand it, uh, the thing that makes up reality as we know it would be all of these hyperstrings. Basically, everything is vibrations, everything is little waves, tiny waves uh, that constitute the very fabric of space time. That's probably a terrible explanation. (laughs) It's complicated and I don't really understand it. But to me, that would make some sense because fabric. Now these hyperstrings are incredibly thin. I mean, so thin that you can't even perceive them. We can't even measure them. So all we've got for this is a theory. You know, there are certain effects that we see that we are trying to explain by using this theory. That doesn't mean it's true. It's just the best idea that we have right now. We can't measure these ourselves, but, um, it would seem that there are Vibrations happening at the very foundational level of space-time, and uh, it's so small and so thin as to be imperceptible by anything that we have. Which to me would correlate very well with these descriptions of the heavens being like a garment or like a fabric, very thin. and uh, And a fabric can be woven; it is woven, but it can be um, excuse me wobbled. It can be vibrated very easily. It can be rolled up, right? Uh, that seems to be what's spoken of here the the very fabric of the dimensions not an actual hard object around the universe that's a separate thing the firmament is a hard object of some kind but the shamayim the heavens within is an expanse okay moving on in that same verse Isaiah 40:22 we read that Yahweh sits above the circle kug in hebrew the kug of the earth there Flat earthers will say the earth is a circle. It's not a ball because there's a different word for ball. So it has to be a flat circle. But if it really does mean circle in the most technical sense, then it's wrong. And flat earthers can't use it as support because a circle is two dimensions. It's 2D. But we know that the depth, that the earth has depth. We can dig down into it miles and miles. We know it's deep. So it's not a circle. That means it's a disc or a cylinder, not a circle. I mean, if it's flat, it's got to be a cylinder. It's got to have depth to it. So it can't just be a 2D shape. So did Isaiah use the wrong word? Is this an error in scripture? No, because when you're far enough above a sphere that you can see the whole thing at once, then no matter which direction you look at it from, its profile, its silhouette
1: is always a circle a sphere is a circle in three dimensions. So when you look at
0: just its shape and not paying attention to the form that we can perceive through the difference between light and darkness over its surface, you take that away, it's just a circle. By the way, Genesius's Hebrew chaldee lexicon defines kug as a circle or sphere used of the arch or vault of the sky. So they say it can be a sphere, others would say it can only be a circle. In any case, the same word Kug is used in Job twenty two fourteen to describe Elohim walking around the circuit of the heavens. So now are the heavens also a circle? I thought that the Shamaim were multidimensional spaces, not a two D shape, and yet it says God is working is walking around the circuit of the Shamaim. So this flat earth hermeneutic is not consistent. They don't use it the same way for every verse. I'm sorry, flat earth friends, to have to point these things out. I'm not trying to be mean. I really am not. And I want you to understand that I have a lot of respect for your desire to treat the scriptures seriously and to trust God instead of men. That is very praiseworthy. And I don't want to cause any kind of division because I think that we all worship the same Lord and we have the same ideas about the fundamentals of the faith. I mean, we are really on the same page, <clears throat> excuse me, on the same page about almost everything. This is just one of those areas we may have to agree to disagree for right now, because I think you may be letting zeal propel you too quickly to a conclusion that doesn't stand up under close scrutiny. I could be wrong. I, I do uh, want to give the disclaimer that I may not have all of this 100% figured out yet. But from where I stand right now, it looks like you're being a little overzealous without really taking all of the scriptures together as a whole. I think we need to be of ultra-literalism. For example, is heaven literally resting on pillars? Well, Job 26.11 says the pillars of the heavens tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. Do the Shamayim have pillars underneath? What if pillars of the heavens is just a poetic way of saying mountains? Or what if it's an analogy for some kind of law of the spiritual realm that supports the dimensions above ours? It would be kind of like us saying that the nuclear force is the glue that holds together subatomic particles. Is it literally glue? Well, no, not like Elmer's glue, but it fits the basic concept of glue. So we can use that word metaphorically. There's no glue literally holding subatomic particles together, but the force acts that way. What if it's the same thing when the prophet said something like the pillars of heaven? They're just making an analogy. Revelations 3.12 promises that victors will become pillars in the temple of Yahweh in the New Jerusalem. Okay, what if we took this literally? Are saints going to have a structure set up over them? that they have to hold up, not moving, lest part of the temple collapse. Don't be silly. Of course, that's not going to happen. The word pillar is being used metaphorically. Now, someone may point to 2 Samuel 22, 8 and say that, oh, yes, the heavens do have foundations or pillars and those things can be moved. Well, let's take a look at it. uh, It's a Psalm of David praising Yahweh. And he says, then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the heavens moved and shook because he was wroth. How are we to read this? Did the earth and the heavens both shake? Well, that's how a flat earther would read it, and they would use that as evidence that the firmament is a dome that sits on the earth. But not so fast, guys, because this is a poetic parallelism showing up again. It's where the same thing is stated in two ways. The earth trembling is parallel to the foundations of the heavens moving and shaking. The earth and heaven's foundations are quite possibly synonymous. Well, if we're on a hard sphere at the center of a cosmos, that's in the shape of an encompassing shell, you know, the firmament being this shell around us. And that shell is spinning or, um, well, this is kind of jumping ahead of myself a little bit here. But anyway, if we're at the center, then we're the foundation. If it moves and we don't, then it's anchored to us and sits over us in 360 degrees. But in the modern view of the cosmos, the earth can't possibly be the foundation of anything because it's just one speck in a vast ocean of space. So I reject that cosmology because of verses like this. You know, if if the heavens are attached to us so that when we move, they move. In some way, or God is, you know, possibly and if we want to interpret that way, God is shaking both of them separately. But um, either way, it doesn't really make sense with modern cosmology because God's not going to shake the whole universe with all the galaxies out there when there's an earthquake. Well, flat earthers will also point to the several verses that talk about the four corners of the earth. But they say that the earth is a circle. So how does this work? I mean, a circle has no corners. So what they have to do is expand their model to a square containing an inscribed circle. My question then is, why would it need to be that way? If the dome is resting on the edges of the circle, as they suppose, then there's no point in having extra ground beyond it. Why is it there? Job twenty six seven says, he suspends the earth over nothing. If it's hanging in empty space, then there's no need for the circle in the dome to be laying on a box. You're only making that in your model to fit the fact that the scripture says four corners. But instead, we can understand it as just saying the four cardinal points. When you draw a circle and then you draw north, south, east and west onto that circle, like on a map, the points where the lines north, south and east and west meet the circle are the four corners. It can be understood that way. It doesn't have to be ultra literal. Of course, we could take up several episodes just talking about all the various components and arguments from the flat earth theory, but we're not going to do that. Just let me say one more thing about it. I keep asking myself, what about the space tourism and private companies putting things into orbit? Is Elon Musk in on the conspiracy with NASA, as flat earthers would probably claim? Because there's no business purpose in running a company that can't accomplish any of its goals. How is SpaceX going to make its money back? And aren't some agencies already putting citizens into space? I know Russia has done it more than once. Are all of the multi-millionaire citizens who forked over millions to go into space in Russia being threatened or paid to keep silent because they didn't actually witness a curved Earth when they supposedly went into orbit? Go check out the Wikipedia entry on space tourism. It tells you that... uh, Eight different visits have been made by citizens to the space station that have gone into orbit. So are those people all being threatened or paid off so they don't talk? What are the flat earthers going to do when SpaceX or Virgin Galactic puts their friends and relatives into orbital or suborbital space and they see the curve of the Earth? Are they going to concede that they've misinterpreted scripture? Or will they actually abandon their faith altogether? I'm quite afraid of that latter possibility. There are some who have come to faith in the Bible because of the flat earth theory. What happens when it's proven to be incorrect? Well, th- their whole faith in the Bible is going to dissolve, isn't it? Because it was founded on this idea of the earth being flat. Honestly, I don't care what shape the earth is. And Now, don't miss this point, okay? This is, this is crucial. It doesn't affect my life. As an ambassador of Messiah, if the earth is round, flat, donut-shaped, toroidal, you know, uh, twisted in a figure eight, it doesn't
1: matter. Tell me one way in which the shape of the earth changes your calling and commission in the kingdom. Can you think of one? It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to our
0: lives. And people are getting very heated about this, very passionate, really twisted up about the whole shape of the earth thing. And for what reason? It's irrelevant. We are called to serve the king by taking the gospel out, by telling people about him, by glorifying him, praising him, by being a good example, living holy lives. None of it has any bearing on the environment that we're in, or I guess the other way around, the environment doesn't have any bearing on those things. But there is something that does
1: indeed matter greatly, and it's this, is the Earth central?
2: Is the Earth central? Or is the sun central?
1: And, you know, in the modern cosmology, the sun isn't central
0: either. It may be central to our system, but then there's many, many other star systems. And there's many galaxies. The universe is full of stars and, and nebula and all these things stretching out for countless billions of light years. Well, if we are really living in that system, then we're just one tiny little
1: moat out in a sea of stars and gases and galaxies. Who knows what else? That is a very uh, dangerous thing to believe
0: philosophically. If your theology is going to be based around uh, the conception of the universe in which we are just out in the sticks somewhere, in which we're not central, you're going to have a very hard time convincing people that they're important and that there is a God that is taking all of this very seriously because we are on the main stage. We are under the spotlight. You know, if you had told me 10 or 20 years ago that I would become a geocentrist, I would have called you a lunatic and I would have laughed you out of town. I was a lover of science and I thought that I could make the Bible fit modern science. I taught people this in school and at church. I told them about how science and the bible were compatible and of course in many ways they are because science is just the observation of the world and the world is as god says it is so that they're going to fit in many ways but in terms of what we call scientism or the belief system that comes along with science and and some of the ideas the theories that we have about history and about astronomy it can't be reconciled with the bible i was wrong in thinking that it could be let me give you a few reasons After Adam and Eve sinned, the whole creation was subjected to death and decay. So the board says that the whole creation groans as it waits for the redemption of the children of Yahweh because it will be redeemed itself. It will be renewed when Yahweh's sons and daughters um, are finally redeemed at the time of the resurrection and beyond. So it's groaning for that time. Well. This happened, this process of death and decay began because of Adam and Eve's sin. That was just here on the earth. That wasn't in every planet all over the universe. So did the actions of this one couple on this one planet that's just somewhere out in the edge of the universe ruin the whole universe? That doesn't make any sense. And what if there's other life out there? Uh, What if there's sentient life on those planets? Scientists would tell us there's so many planets that some of them are bound to have other life that has grown and evolved to a state like we see here on Earth. Are all of them being affected by what Adam and Eve did here on this one planet? Hmm. That doesn't really jive, does it? After the millennium, God is going to create a new heavens and a new Earth, and the heavenly Jerusalem is going to come down to the Earth and heaven and earth will be one at that point. That city is where the most high is going to dwell with his people. God will be on earth in the Jerusalem that was in heaven. That heavenly Jerusalem is never going to go to some other planet. God is not going to dwell in some other place in the universe. Here on earth is where he's going to come and dwell. It says forever, forever. Well, does that mean that the rest of the universe is just out of luck. Sorry, guys, whoever else might be out there and other planets in the uh, countless number of star systems in the universe. You guys don't get to live with God. You don't, you don't get the great city of Jerusalem coming to you. We've got it all here. Is that really the case? Maybe if it's all empty, but then why is it out there? Why are these gazillions of star systems out in empty space with nothing at all in them. That's kind of unbelievable to me. And why wouldn't we be at the center if that's the case? If we're the only thing that's habited, inhabited, why would we not be at the center? Why would we be out at some random place in this huge, maybe endless universe? I think we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but prophecy says that stars are going to fall to the earth. At the end of the age, when the heavens are rolled up like a scroll, which, by the way, can't happen with the normal, you know, the modern idea of the universe. How is the universe going to be rolled up like a scroll? How are stars, which are gigantic, way bigger than the earth, how are they going to fall to the earth? That doesn't make any sense. Also, the earth doesn't move according to the Bible. Let me give you a few verses. First Samuel two eight. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and on them he has set the world. They're set on pillars, okay? First Chronicles 16.30 The world also shall be stable, that it not be moved. Psalm ninety three one. Indeed, the world is well established and cannot be shaken. Psalm 96.10 Indeed, the world is firmly established and it will not be moved. Psalm 104.5 He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. Sounding very much like this thing that we're on is stationary. Isaiah 66.1 Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Does a footstool move? What footstool spins around its center while flying forward at thousands of miles per hour? And yet that's what the earth does. I know it's just an analogy. It's not actually his footstool. But still, uh, the analogy to a footstool holds, you know, it holds truth. What's being said here is true, even if it's only an analogy. So it could be that it's talking about the earth as a, a footstool, even though it moves. But that seems pretty odd. Well, according to the Bible, the earth is set in place, but the sun and moon are not. The sun and moon move. So in Joshua ten thirteen, we see, and the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hastened not to go down about a whole day. Or Habakkuk 3.11 The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. So they stood still in their habitation unlike normal. Isaiah thirty eight eight. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees which has gone down in the sundial that Ahaz, has 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees, by which degrees it was gone down. So God rewound the, process, the progress of the sun. It was moving in one direction and he made it move back the other way so that the sundial changed by 10 degrees. So either the word of Elohim is true or modern scientific theory is true, but it can't be both. Because they contradict each other. I understand that now. I didn't used to. Um, But today I realize it has to be one or the other. I saw a lecture by Robert uh, Sunjinsis. I'm totally slaughtering this. Sunjinsis. Robert Sunginis, One of the people who was in the principal That documentary I mentioned earlier. His website is GalileoWasWrong.com. And he's teaching. Now he's Catholic. So, you know, obviously much of his theology, I'm not going to agree with, but he is teaching geocentrism, saying that this whole move towards a, a heliocentric model was a mistake. And we have to return to what the Bible clearly says, that we're stationary and the luminaries are moving. Well, as part of his arguments for this, his demonstration of why he thinks this is correct, which a lot of it is really good. He showed an animated model of the solar system, and actually it was two models uh, side by side. In one model, you had the heliocentric normal view of things where we are orbiting the sun and all the rest of the planets are orbiting the sun with us. But in the other model, he had the earth stationary at the center and the sun going around it, and then the planets were going around the sun. So the planets weren't revolving around the earth, the planets were orbiting the sun, but the sun with its planets was orbiting the earth. And what amazed me is that the positions of all of the heavenly bodies in these two animated uh, diagrams were exactly the same at all times. So he was running this thing forward and backward and showing that at every point in time, the positions of the bodies were exactly the same. What this means is that the math works exactly the same for either model of the solar system, geocentric or heliocentric. The math is duplicate.
1: And when I saw that, I knew we'd been duped. We've been duped because you can, in fact,
0: NASA, he will tell you, uses this um, geocentric model for a lot of their calculations when they're sending things out into the solar system they're actually using a geocentric mathematical model because it's a little bit simpler it, the math turns out the same the the results you get are the same regardless of which model you use but it's a little cleaner and simpler if you use the geocentric one so they use that for a lot of their calculations that floored me i mean the fact that he could show me this animation and it, clearly they work the same way oh okay suddenly i understood I understood why the enemy would want to switch us over from the geocentric to the heliocentric way of thinking. So here's the scenario that I propose, the model that I propose. I think that the firmament is a sphere, like a shell, like the shell of an egg, but it's this spherical surface that's outside of the solar system. It's not real close to us. It's way out far from us, many, many, many miles. It's outside of our star system and the sphere itself has the luminaries either in it or very close to it somehow connected to it and the stars and by luminaries i mean stars not the sun moon and other planets those are separate within the space between us and the firmament but i think the firmament contains the stars that we see at a distance and it is revolving around the earth the earth is still We're at the center, but the sphere with all the stars in it is revolving, circling around us. The sun and the planets are moving about within the space that's between us and this firmament. Now, some people will argue that the walls of this shell that we're within can't be that far away from earth because when Elohim caused the flood, water came down from the windows of heaven. So they say it has to be over us very close. But look at the Hebrew word in Genesis 7.11 that describes this time during the flood. The word there is Shamayim, heavens, not rakia, not the firmament. So it isn't implying that panes slid open in the dome and water poured through it. Again, this is talking about the heavens as a whole, including the higher dimensions. So I think what's happening here is that water was being translated from higher dimensions to the lower dimensions, just like an angel can translate into a human body when God allows. When God purposes it, things can manifest. That's a great word that that works really well here. The water was manifesting from its place in the higher dimensions or the spiritual realm into the physical realm. It wasn't that a window was opening up literally and water was pouring through from miles above us. You know, the Bible also says that Yahweh opened the doors of the shemaim and rained down manna from uh, for Israel from the clouds. Manna actually fell from the clouds for Israel. Not the firmament, though. It says the clouds of the heavens, the shemaim. So are there doors in the clouds? No. Metaphorically, there could be, though, if we're talking about an opening in the veil between dimensions instead of a physical object opening up in the sky. If we're talking about... You know, a metaphor of a portal opening between dimensions, then yes, absolutely, there could be doors in the sky. Um, but if you're trying to take it ultra literally, I don't think it's going to work. So your question now may be, how could this have happened Alexander if you're right? And if indeed we are in a Earth centric model, how could we have gotten it so wrong? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we have an enemy against us who is the master of deception. He specializes in lying in getting people confused. And think about how beneficial this is to him and his kingdom to get people thinking about the cosmos in this way. Oh, man, this is one of his best moves ever. He will leverage this until the end of the age, I'm sure. Here's Rob Skiba's thoughts on this. Now, Rob Skiba is a flat earther and he has a website called Testing the Globe. And while I don't agree right now with the whole Flat Earth thing, um, his conclusions on this are excellent. This is what he says about Satan's strategy on his website. Number one, first, get people to doubt Yahweh's word by destroying the very foundation of our Bible, Genesis, specifically the creation account. Make it seem like it's, you know, not scientifically accurate, that it has to be fiction. Number two, Set up a new paradigm where God is out and science is in. Evolution removes Yahweh from the equation. Number three, when evolution finally runs its course and becomes utterly bankrupt, introduce the idea of intelligent design, but deny the true designer his due credit and place it rather on ancient aliens. Number four, promote the ancient alien theme as much as possible in all forms of media by perpetuating the concept of Earth as a tiny blue marble orbiting an average sun in an average galaxy among trillions of other galaxies in an ever-expanding universe. With so much potential for life to exist in such a vast expanse, the idea of alien scientists being our creators seems a lot more plausible over time and with heavy indoctrination. Number 5. The stage is set for our alien creators to return and bestow upon us their miracles, signs and wonders. Yeah, I'd say Rob is onto something there. There's there's so many things that we can do to uh, to debunk the idea of Yahweh as creator, to debunk the word of God, if we convince people that they live in this cosmos where they're not central. Think about the implications for the kingdom of darkness because of what they've accomplished here, convincing us that we're just one little planet out there. So even though the shape of the earth doesn't really matter to us, whether or not we're central, whether or not the earth is the footstool of God, whether or not the spotlight is on us and the angels, the watchers, are watching us, whether or not the heavenly host is observing what God is doing with this race of beings here on the earth, that is incredibly important. It can change everything. And we have so many atheists these days, in large part, Because of our cosmology and, of course, because of the the deception about how old the Earth is. You know, these things fit together. And now we've got this ancient aliens theory that's being pushed, but it couldn't have been pushed. like Like Rob said, if they hadn't laid this groundwork about the cosmos first. Before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to let you know, in case you haven't noticed it yet, that I added some materials to the merchandise page on watchmanalexander.com. There's a new shirt design there that features the name of Yeshua HaMashiach over a stylized crown of thorns. And on the top and the bottom of that crown of thorns are the Hebrew letters Aleph and Tav, beginning and end, or Alpha and Omega in Greek. It's the first and last letter of the alphabet, which I think is cool because Yeshua said he is the beginning and the end, so I really wanted to work that into this design. It's available on shirts, sweaters, hoodies, et cetera, as well as uh, on a really sweet canvas tote bag. I also created a phone case with my Genesis 1-1 design on it. And I created a new mug that says woke on it, which I know a lot of my listeners and readers are. They are woke because Yahweh woke you up to the deceptions that have been leveled against us and against our ancestors. So I think that would be a really great conversation starter to use um, at the office, if you you know drink out of this mug at the office and just leave it on your desk or you know wherever it is you work, and other people are going to see it, that's probably going to spark some cool conversations. By the way, lest you think that my ministry exists in order to sell merchandise, let me assure you that nothing could be further from the truth. I really hardly make anything from sales on the things that I've designed. It's just a side project that. Um, that I started because I enjoy making designs that are unique and faith-based and I want other people to have access to these things. So don't worry, this is not some sleazy money-making operation and if it is, I'm doing a lousy job of it. But uh, that being said, it is nice to have multiple small streams of income. So if you like my stuff, please do order some of them as gifts for Christmas or for Hanukkah, which is coming up soon. And if there's a particular kind of item that you'd like to see me provide, email me and I'll see what I can do. That wraps up episode 17. Until next time, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Watchmen out.